Hello, and welcome back to Brace. Today, Tommy and I are going to be discussing the second half of Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Last time, if you listened, we went through part one, which was the cognitive revolution, as well as part two, the agricultural revolution. And today we're going to be talking about the unification of humankind and the scientific revolution. Both of these were very interesting sections. I think I enjoyed both of them and thinking about things that he was talking about a lot more than the previous section. So I know I gave it a little bit of a, a lower score compared to the other books that we had listened or read so far. So, Tommy, when we were looking at the unification of humankind, some of the big sections in that include money, imperialism, and religion as basically the three big things that allowed for humankind to go from having separate worlds to one unified history and world. What were the kind of biggest things that you were interested in discussing in those sections? Well, for one, I thought that kind of the invention of money, or I guess the the recreation of it as a tool to trade goods, where in previous times there had been, you know, barter system, this for that, was a big step in unifying people. I think it becomes very difficult to exchange apples for shoes, I think is the one example he discusses. The apples won't last as long, so if it takes 300 apples to buy a pair of shoes, will that person be able to even eat all those apples in the time? I thought that was for sure an interesting part, where you know money can now exchange the apples for money. The money can then be used to exchange for shoes and any other you know good or service. So it's kind of interesting that it, you know, it took so long for us to develop and come up with, but at the same time, it's also understandable where when we were just uh, hunters and gatherers, we didn't use money because, you know, the groups and tribes that roamed had all their possessions with them. And maybe it's jumping too far ahead, but the consumerism ethic of, you know, buying things is also a, you know, relatively recent development in our history as a species but there's that we talk about you know the scent of money that's the one chapter on on money and then there's also empires imperial visions and then the law of religion i think in the law of religion i thought it was interesting how he compared not only you know religions to one another in unifying groups of people but also ideologies as in essence a religion i'll have to find the page but he clearly lines out you know what a religion is and it seems that a lot of ideologies uh, in our current time in a sense fit fit that mold so i think you're looking for page 233 where he lines out the humanist religions liberal humanism socialist humanism and evolutionary humanism i thought that was definitely interesting if i could touch on what you were talking about with the the money real quick the way that money stores value for the future is fundamental in how we have a system today that allows for so much wealth to be had without that you know fundamental piece there's no way that we would be able to exchange goods and services in a way that allows people to build wealth like you were talking about i think that when you go back to kind of pre-modern times there's a little bit of a gray area but there's there's definitely a time when mostly people were unable to use money because there was so little value to be stored that pretty much every single year was a fight against you know the environment for your life right so 
heat and food were the two things that you were concerned about and you know some some sort of shelter and it was only really when some amount of technological development and specialization was able to be had that said you know there is a shoemaker there is someone that tends the apple orchards that allowed them to specialize and actually create more value for their communities than they needed to bring in and that's when wealth and money started becoming a, a very valuable asset. One of the more interesting parts of that to me is, uh, let me see if I can find where it says it. Basically, money isn't inherently worth anything. And Christians and Muslims who could not agree on religious beliefs could nevertheless agree on monetary belief. Because whereas religious religion asks us to believe in something, money asks us to believe that other people believe in something and that that is that that money will have value in the future it's it's an interesting way he put it together and phrased it because it's right you're not asking yourself to believe in something right like you said it's it's someone else believing in its worth or value you and Um, i both know that the green pieces of paper we carry around in our wallets have no actual value or utility in the world but they represent a system that is backed by the United States government. And we have a a joint faith that the United States government will be there to declare that that is legal tender and will be good for us to pay our debts or exchange for some value. What I think is so interesting is we live in such a digital age. I think he says it at some point that something like 90% of all of our money is only stored as a digital currency. It's in the banks, you know, it shows up as a number on our screen when we look at it. But if we went, if everyone went and tried to take out their money, only 10% of it could make it out and then we'd run out. So that, that was in uh, the scientific revolution when he talks all about capitalism. So I'll save my thoughts for a little bit on that aspect of it. But but yes, he, he does describe that. And it's funny, I, I talked with a lot of my coworkers as I was reading this book about, you know, some of the different topics and it sparked some interesting conversation. The point I just wanted to say about that was not to be a doomsday or anything, but as people prepare for some catastrophic event that, you know, whether it's a, a nuclear war or, you know, a volcanic eruption or something that would throw the societal order into total disarray, it's actually really, really difficult for us to imagine a scenario where that money that we've put so much faith in is now useless right? It's now worthless. But that is an eventuality that some number of sapiens will come up against in the future. I feel pretty confident in saying. So there's going to be some number of people that have prepared in a way that have physical assets that are of value, even in that situation. And it's probably not going to be gold and silver. And those people are going to be the ones that end up on top whenever that happens. Yeah. Cause I mean, in a world, you know, right now where money quickly becomes useless. I think the people that have weapons, the people that have food, people that, you know, can protect what they own are going to be the ones that come up on top, like you said. I thought it was funny that you mentioned, you know, you and I have a shared belief that the government will back our dollar. And I would say that mine is slightly waning, but that's uh, besides the point. Is <laughs> that due to the $31.24 trillion that we're in debt? Nah, dude, because remember... Like you said, 90% is just fake money. Most money is fake money. A large majority of money is fake money. The only reason I'm bringing this up right now, it's completely apart from the book here, but I was looking at the national debt clock today with a couple of friends and talking about it. I noticed if you look at all assets that the United States has, 
it's $173 trillion worth. That's a lot of money. If you look at all unfunded liabilities that the federal government has taken on, including Social Security, including Medicare, including all these things, you want to take any sort of hazard of a guess how much that those unfunded liabilities are? My guess, just because, you know, the whole 90 to 90 to 10, I'm going to go with 1.4 quadrillion. Oh, I really appreciate you taking me over. That's awesome. But no, it's 172 trillion. Oh, okay. So, so it's literally 50-50. No, it's, it's 1 trillion off from being 100% of all of the assets in the United States. Wait, 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 wait. What? Maybe I misunderstood. Well, we can talk about it after the podcast, okay. but it's <laughs> insane. So that's a fun aside for you guys. Look that up. It's National Debt Clock. Take a look. Oh, geez. Um, geez, oh, man. To stay on topic a little bit, you were talking about the religions. Did you find what I was referring to there with the different comparisons of the humanist religions? So actually, I did, but then I went back a few pages, and what I was actually trying to portray was this Venn diagram of what religion is. And I'll, I'll read a brief passage real quick. Religion is a system of human norms and values that is founded on belief in a superhuman order. The theory of relativity is not a religion because, at least so far, there are no human norms and values that are founded on it. Football is not a religion because nobody argues that its rules reflect superhuman edicts. So that's that's where there's differences, you know, between just human norms and then a belief in a superhuman order, right? So what you were referring to was something I found very interesting in this chapter, this uh, the law of religion. And it talks about, you know, humanist religions, religions that sanctify humanity. And all three of these, you know, come together. Homo sapiens has a unique and sacred nature that is fundamentally different from the nature of all other beings and phenomena. The supreme good is the good of humanity. And he goes and dissects how that up top idea can go down into liberalism, it can go down into communism, or it can go down into Nazism. But it all starts with that that fundamental belief that religions sanctify humanity. Yeah, I kind of struggled with this section, to be honest with you. Just the comparison was so... I totally understood it as he was explaining it, but I, I really had a hard time internalizing what that led to, right? So... One thing that he says here is the only humanist sect that has actually broken loose from the traditional monotheism is evolutionary humanism, which most famous representatives were the Nazis. What distinguished the Nazis from other humanist sects was a different definition of humanity, one deeply influenced by Darwin's theory of evolution. They believed that humankind is not something universal and eternal, but rather a mutable species that can evolve or degenerate. Man can evolve into Superman or degenerate into subhuman. So he shows in that paragraph, and it totally makes sense to me, what the Nazi super, you know, the superhuman order that they were subscribing to was evolution. And they said, look, if, if humans are a product of evolution, then we can use our scientific knowledge to perfect that evolution. And I think it kind of went to show in in how analytical the author is in this section that when you take the approach that he does to analyzing the religious impulse of humans, it becomes very hard to explain why some are justifiable and some are unjustifiable. And I, I would hope that none of our listeners or either of us would say that Nazism is justifiable. But when you take 
the analysis that he lays out and compare it to liberal humanism, which I think is, I don't know, the leading religion of the day in the United States. It's hard to say why that one is okay and the other one isn't. Well, I, I think that's, you know, something that we've talked about in our chats, you know, outside of the podcast where it seems to be contradictions. I don't, in a sense, think he's subscribing a moral judgment on these three things that come from the same overall idea that humans are the overall good of the world. I don't necessarily think he's, you know, saying that one is good or one is bad. I think he's just describing that it's interesting that all three can come, all three that turn into very different things can come from the same idea. You're right. That is what he's saying there. To finish out that chapter, though, he says, no one speaks about exterminating lower races or inferior people, but many contemplate using our increasing knowledge of human biology to create superhumans. Just to throw one example up of where I think he doesn't dive deep enough in the considerations or he doesn't consider the possibilities that are actually laid out by the world's religions. He views them all as myths and then disregards those myths and tries to explain human behavior despite those. So this is a reincarnation of the traditional Christian belief in a free and eternal soul that resides within each individual. Yet over the last 200 years, the life scientists have thoroughly undermined this belief. Scientists studying the inner workings of the human organism have found no soul there. He explicitly says, we've done the searching, we've found no soul in the human 20 some pages later, 16 pages later, it looks like he's talking about consciousness. And he says, after centuries of extensive, extensive scientific research, biologists admit they still don't have any good explanation for how brains produce consciousness. So it, it, on one hand, he says, we've done the looking, we've found no soul. And on the other hand, he says, we've done the looking. And for whatever reason, we can't really explain consciousness yet. So one is a declaration. The other is just a passing comment. We, we just don't know yet. And I find that to be hilarious because as a Christian, I believe that consciousness and the soul are inextricably linked. So I don't know if he found that contradiction at any point and ignored it or if he just never found that contradiction. But did you notice that when you were reading? You can find a lot of different contradictions and you can you can see where his bias is laid out throughout the book. I can't think of anything specifically, but there was definitely a a more positive outlook on like Buddhism and a more negative outlook on Christianity. I think that's fine. I mean, it, uh, an author's writing a book and, you know, we're deciding to read about it, but you can definitely pick out some of the contradictions. And I think there's probably you know, because you have a bias and he has a bias, you're probably seeing it more, whereas some of the other books we've read, that bias has not been so clearly pronounced. I think the part that frustrates me is he claims to have the bias of only looking at human history. And if I can read the inside cover, I think he explains he uses drawing on insights from biology, anthropology, paleontology and economics. That's what he used in order to write this book. And I think he portends to be someone that is coming from this objectively. And I think anyone that reads it sees very ingrained biases. And yes, my biases exist and they happen to skew in a bit of an opposite direction. But I'm, I'm a Christian, right? He admittedly is an Israeli citizen. He's from Israel. He works at a school in Jerusalem, I think. He doesn't have to have the same biases as me. But he understands the global audience includes 
I don't know, two sevenths of all people that are Christians to not at least attempt to roll back your biases a little, maybe have a Christian read it and say, what's this? If, if I were him and I wrote this book, I think it's a great book that includes a lot of information that allowed me to see what institutions were built over time, how those institutions were made. So things that I took for granted, like Greenwich Mean Time being the standard that we use for all clocks in the world. I didn't know how that started, and he tells us how that started. Same thing with statistics being used in life insurance policies. He, he explains how that began. And those are awesome. But if I'm someone writing this book, all I have to do is take a Christian, you know, some sort of priest or, or something like that, a Muslim a Jew, you can throw in the Hindu and the Buddhist too, because they have large populations of the of the world, and have them just read it and say, what would you adjust here in my wording so that it might be more receptive to your audience? And I think he gains a couple million book buys if, if he does that. That's really my critique, and I could complain about it for literally hours, I think. <laughs> well, it's good we're, we're limited to an hour. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that takes us, though, to get past my biases to the scientific revolution. So um, real quick, before we sure. hit the scientific revolution, one thing I really enjoyed in Imperial Visions was his talk about when they become us. So he talks about how empires have shifted and changed and, and moved around and how there's definitely a part of empires that did unify humanity. Yes, there were atrocities and genocides and things of that nature. But at the same time, many areas now have the cultures they do due to being a part of an empire. And like, I think one example he used was uh, that, what is it, like a sacred church in India that was actually from the Muslim empire before it became you know, the British Empire. And people would probably declare that as that's like what true Indian culture is. But was it really? And I just thought it was interesting. He gave imperialism and colonization a more positive outlook than I think a lot of, you know, current day wokists might give imperialism. Yep. One of the ones that was, I, I don't know if this is what you were referring to, but one of the more interesting parts of that section for me was when he talks about the British, you know, conquerors, if you want to call them that, that went to India. They found ancient ruins that no one had really investigated for ever. And the British wanted to understand it. So they kind of ex excavated it and looked at it. And there were some inscriptions there they didn't understand. And the British, after studying that and finding something else, I don't have all the details in front of me, but they ended up unlocking like three, two or three ancient languages in part helped to a decree that was written in something that they had some understanding of. And it was really cool because it was a, a piece of, of history that was completely lost to those people that due to that inquisitive mind of the, you know, you call them the conquerors, but the people that were exploring the world at that time, the unknown world to them, they, they wanted to find out more about it. So, and, you know, similar to what happened in Egypt. And there's a lot of kind of I don't want to call it a brouhaha, but there's scandal around the British Museum having pieces from all different parts of the ancient world. And it's because they cataloged the ancient world. Without the British, we wouldn't know, you know, a tenth of what we know about ancient history. And yeah, it came at a price. One And to go off of what you were talking about there a little bit as well, one of the parts that I wouldn't say frustrated me, but 
I just found to be an interesting take on his part was saying that when the Spanish conquered South America or Central America, when they landed and the natives helped the 500 or so Spaniards that were there to overcome the Aztec empire, you know, they badly miscalculated because then they were subject to racist and greedy overlords. I found that to be such a reductionist take. Again, call me uh, biased because I'm siding with the Christians here. But the guys that were doing the, oh, I don't know, 80,000 human sacrifices in a single day, all from these neighboring tribes, they weren't sacrificing their own people. They would capture and enslave the neighboring tribes, and they basically had an empire of servitude around them. And, you know, were the Spanish perfect? Of course not. But outlawing or doing away with the social construct of human sacrifice, I think was maybe the best thing that ever happened to the, that group of people uh, living in that place in that time. So I, I don't know. It, it seemed so insensitive of him to just say, oh, they, they badly miscalculated. They, they made a huge mistake by siding with the, you know, the Spanish conquerors here. Did you find that to be abrasive or was that in line for you? So I didn't I didn't necessarily notice that way of words. But as we were discussing prior to the podcast, I, I thought there was another kind of interesting contradiction. And as we, you know, go into the scientific revolution, I'll expand upon that a little bit more. Like when we talk about the meaning or I guess, what is happiness? He's got a whole chapter during the scientific revolution about happiness. And I, I guess I am kind of skipping ahead, but uh, go ahead. We're, we're jumping into the scientific revolution. I'm going to read the sections here and then we can jump around (laughs) as we want. So the sections that he had were the discovery of ignorance, just as a 10 second recap, that basically meant the scientific revolution came out of people saying, oh, we don't know everything. So that allowed them to ask the question, you know, why is this? And then try to find a discovery for it and kind of develop the scientific method. The marriage of science and empire. So the British were able to become experts in science because they were willing to have imperial ambitions and go places they didn't know. Again, exploring the globe was basically them uh, saying, we don't know what's on the edge of this map. Let's go find out. So they were willing to admit their ignorance. The capitalist creed, the wheels of industry, a permanent revolution, and they lived happily ever after. That's what you're talking about there with the exploration of what happiness is and the end of Homo sapiens. And that's kind of talking about what possibly could be the the future of evolution, essentially, whether it's bionics or completely AI or uh, whatever. So what did you want to jump into here in the scientific revolution? Yeah. So just uh, to kind of continue on with with what we were talking about with that that section one of the ways he describes happiness or you know biologists and and uh, scientists have described it is meaning right so we've talked about meaning before on the podcast and how we think there's a lack of it but anyways he describes meaning as one way to reach happiness and i thought if you relate these two right and these people are being sacrificed they are not living in the best of conditions, they may have gained more happiness or more value from fighting with the Spaniards to, like you said, stop human sacrifice. And even if the miscalculation, quote unquote, ended in them dying due to diseases that were brought over, I don't necessarily think the the value that they gained should be stricken out. So I I agree with you uh, in the sense that was it a miscalculation? Or did this result in, you know, a better overall society, more happiness for them? 
you know, I guess you could say death is the end of happiness. So I guess there's an argument to be made there. But anyways, that's quite um, a profound statement you just made there. I, I don't know that I agree, but oh, well, OK, <laughs> yeah, but it is profound either way. Um, I thought the interesting part of that section as well, I'm, I'm glad you agree with me there. And yeah, I think when when you take the approach of happiness is wrought from fulfilling a, a meaningful life, you can say, oh, if these were an oppressed people, which I think you can objectively say candidates for human sacrifice were in fact oppressed, then them being able to side with people that had advanced technology to overthrow the, their oppressors were probably some of the most meaningful moments of their lives, right? So that, in a way, that was, you know, when they had their most fulfillment. And I wouldn't probably call it happiness, but something uh, approximating happiness there. You know, I think you can make the argument that the exact opposite of what you've all saying there. One other thing that I highlighted in this section that I just want to talk about because we have talked about in the past is how happiness is regulated by our hormones and whatever else by our you know cortisol level and all, all that. And he says, if happiness is determined by expectations, then two pillars of our society, mass media and the advertising industry, may unwittingly be depleting the globe's reservoir of contentment. I thought that that was really well put. And he kind of talks about, you know, if you were an 18 year old in a val in a village 5000 years ago, you'd probably think you were really good looking because the other 50 guys were, you know, old or kids or whatever. And so you're like, I'm you know, the most eligible bachelor around. But today, you know, when you're growing up, if you're an 18 year old, you're, you know, comparing yourself to Cristiano Ronaldo or LeBron James or, you know, Bradley Cooper. I don't know whoever the sex symbol is of the time. And you're Ryan saying Ryan Gosling, I'm Hugh Jackman. We're sticking with Ryan the Reynolds. Okay. Deal. Sorry. I'm Dwayne only the Rock Johnson. With men. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you could also look at it on the other side. And we've explicitly talked about how, you know, Instagram is can be very difficult for, you know, young women going through their teenage years and seeing, you know, these in a sense, manufactured images of what quote unquote beauty is. And I, I think there is a, you know, this was a very profound part of this section is the contentment that we receive being reduced due to the social media. So I, I thought, I thought that for sure was a very interesting part. Yeah, I would, I would definitely say yes to that. And one other just quick aside, I thought it was funny. Uh, I don't remember if we talked about it on the podcast, but one of the things I was floating as an idea that we could talk about is over the summer, a, a huge longitudinal study of antidepressant use participants Oh yeah, found out that antidepressants don't work, right? The theory was, you know, there is a chemical imbalance in your brain. This drug will fix that imbalance and you'll be good. And he cites that as, you know, something about happiness that we've done since we've understood biochemistry. So Prozac, for example, does not change regimes, but by raising serotonin levels, it lifts people out of their depression. And, uh, well, not anymore, Yuval. Well, that was, that's also an interesting thing because he talks about in, in that chapter about, you know, and they lived happily ever after. He talks about some people could be born just based on genetics where their scale of emotions is from three to seven and, you know, they balance out at five, but the highest they can ever get is a seven compared to, you know, some people may be born from a six to 10 range and balance out around an eight. Do you think that's all bullshit due to this newer study? Or do you think there there is something to be said about that and maybe 
the medicines or treatments that we've been using have just not been able to do, not been able to change what that chemical makeup is. I think that humans have biodiversity in their chemical structures. So <laughs> yes, I think there are people that have the capacity to feel a higher level of happiness than other people and lower level, same thing. I, I, I don't think that he was off base with that. Do I think that we have the ability to chemically change an individual's capacity in that regard? No, I don't. I, I think that we may be able to do that in the future, but I think that is to such a cellular level of difference that I don't think we even have the capacity to measure it right now, let alone change it. Okay. Well, just to bring it aside, and you know, I, I don't have the research or study in front of me, but I feel like I've heard of a story where a woman was like something was implanted into the pleasure center of her brain. And I don't remember the reason for that, but every time she, you know, hit the button, she essentially would, you know, feel insane amounts of pressure, pre pleasure, sorry. And therefore, I guess what ended up happening was she like kept hitting the button over and over and over and over and over and would started. forego. Well, she, she didn't end up dying, but again, I don't have all the facts. Is this in front rats? Of I, I know that this happened with rats. I don't think I, we were doing this to humans. This sounds no, terribly immoral. Okay. Well, I'm going to find it and fact check myself, but <laughs> probably not now. But okay. anyways, I, I think there may be ways right now that we have, but I, I, I would agree with you. I don't think they're defined enough to just say, you know, here's a prescription for an antidepressant because you feel sad. And not to, not to, you know, push away depression because I don't, that's not what I meant to say, but. No, I, but there's something very much to be said about the, the society that we, the, the medicalization of all human experience right now. You know, if you're anxious, you know, there's a pill for that. If you have you know, attention difficulties, there's a pill for that. If you're depressed, there's a pill for that. If you're fat, there's a pill for that. If you're thin, there's a pill for that. Like whatever situation you find yourself in, there's a tendency for us to try to find the way to change you back to quote unquote normal. When I think that sadness as a human emotion is incredibly normal. Uh, one of the things we skipped over was the change in basically medicine from you know the middle ages to now throughout the scientific revolution let me see if i can pull that up real quick uh, well go ahead try try and pull that up but i was just going to make the point of you know he talks a lot about capitalism as well and the change that has happened and i want to bring this up because you know now there's you know a problem you are feeling displeasure in some sort of way anxiety whatever and the solution is spend money to get something that will help you. Consumerism. Um, consumerism, yes. right? So he talks a ton about, and I thought it might be a good segue, but if you want to go that other direction, we totally can. <laughs> go ahead. Um, segue away. I'm just going to say real quick here. He talks about in 1199, King Richard the Lionheart was struck with an arrow in his left shoulder in what we would call today a minor injury. Gangrene set in and he died two weeks later. And he talks about also King Edward the First, who, you know, 30 years later, and his wife had 16 children between 1255 and 1284. And, you know, basically six of them survived to adulthood. That just to think about the human experience there, you know, when you think about sadness, can you just imagine for a second being a rich, right, a literal royal person at that time, and being 
having no technology around to save your children, you know, just to get through the normal parts of life. And even the fact that so many of them of the 16, he actually lists all of them were anonymous, right? If they were, you know, less than five months old, they didn't even have a public name at that point. Maybe the parents named them, but it wasn't something that was publicly available. And just that being the norm for the vast majority of human history of children die, you got to have more of them to where we are now. You know, if, if a mother has postpartum depression, we try to medicate that. And as we should, of course, we don't want mothers to feel disassociated from their children. But the idea that that's abnormal and it's something we need to fix for pretty much every human emotion is crazy to me. But sorry, go ahead with your consumerism segue. Well, I, I just thought it it's interesting because back in the day, like you were saying, the royals, you know, who had all the money would spend luxuriously uh, on feasts and what's that called? Tournaments and Tourney. things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Tourneys. Whereas the peasants would would be very uh, stingy with their money because that's how they survived. They needed that in order to maintain. But what it seemed to have done in our current age is those two ethics have switched. Now the rich are spending less money on luxurious things and being smart with money, investing it. Whereas, you know, many poor and middle class people, money is their to be spent. And we even go into debt, affording luxurious things that are not necessary or that will not increase our own wealth. And I just, I thought that was like one of the most interesting parts of when he was talking about capitalism. Yeah. His, the supreme commandment of the rich is invest. The supreme commandment of the rest of us is buy. That sums it up pretty well. And that was, that was interesting. Yeah. His, his section on consumerism, I think was some of the most interesting for me as well. Talking about Consumerism has worked very hard with the help of popular psychology to convince people that indulgence is good for you, whereas frugality is self-oppression. He cites, and I don't have where he cites it or what source he's using, but each year the U.S. population spends more money on diets than the amount needed to feed all the hungry people in the rest of the world. I think that that and the medicalization of everything goes hand in hand, right? So consumerism has taught us that if we're willing to spend the money, the market has the solution to every problem. And so the big pharma industry says, if you're willing to spend the money, we'll come up with a proposed chemical solution to your problem, no matter what it is. Yeah, I, that, again, you know, that was one of the most, most interesting sections. Another interesting thought I just had was, I think scientifically we might stall out. And the reason I say that is, and, and this is just a random thought I kind of had, but like you said, we go to the market assuming there's going to be a solution. An, an acknowledgement of ignorance led to the scientific revolution. Could an admonishment of ignorance lead to the fall of the scientific revolution? If we just believe that we know all there is to know, or you know, not enough people become scientists and, and continue to research and, and come up with things, could we essentially plateau or stall out? I guess, uh, in in a sense, you're making the argument that the future that capitalism and the scientific revolution has promised us of continual growth isn't a guarantee. At which case, the whole house cards falls apart. Correct. I I, I really tend to think it isn't a house of cards. As I sit here talking to you from states away, you know, on a MacBook with lights on and, and everything else, when you, when you think about what has changed from, say, 1850 to now, 
the changes are happening at light speed and every single week we're finding out about new discoveries that could change the dynamic of, you know, human history for years to come. So I don't think we're going to run out of Elon Musk's and, you know, Nikola Tesla's that decide to focus their energy wholeheartedly on a project, you know, that, that changes the direction of human civilization. Those people are few and far between. There will always be the scientist that is willing to ask the question and go and investigate an answer that doesn't have to be paradigm shifting, but allows for that next scientist to ask the next question. And that's the beautiful thing about the scientific revolution is it's all the independent minds that end up working off of each other and together to solve the big problem. So one of the ones that I think is the most interesting to watch over the next decade we're going to unlock geothermal energy. Oh yeah. And and that's going to, you know, nuclear energy was a was a huge dynamic change that for some idiotic reason we're not taking full advantage of in the west. And um, what's funny is the green movement doesn't want to acknowledge that that is a potential which, that we should be doing, which seems crazy to me, but don't maybe there's something else going there. Don't get me going on that three and a half hour rant. <laughs> Geothermal, though, is a it's not unlimited in the sense that everything is finite, but it is as close to a directly unlimited source of energy that we we are going to be able to get. Even solar, we don't have the capacity to harness that in a way that makes it make sense. Geothermal, we're going to be able to put basically wherever we want and just dig down way further than you know, we're going to dig down to hell, basically, to where it's real hot <laughs> and we can harness that heat. I'll also say one of the more interesting sections in the book, just talking about energy, was him talking about the development of the steam engine and how before that we basically had no ability to convert energy at all other than through organisms. Right. You know, food we can turn into work and that was it. Um, and then we managed to turn heat into steam and that steam was able to move things and that completely changed the world. And of course, we all know this historically, but hearing the details of how it happened was really cool for me. Oh, for sure. Two things I wanted to bring up. One to just push back a little bit on... Uh, <laughs> one to just push back on... Yes, I, I agree that you know there will always be people asking questions. I guess what I'm afraid of is a majority of people being ignorant of how the lights and how the computer in front of you work. That's already that's already the case. I, I understand that, but I don't know. I guess my argument starts to fall apart, but it's okay. <laughs> Anyways, it was just an idea. I thought it was cool. Well, um, one of my favorite, I, I don't think I mentioned him on our comedy podcast, so I give got to give a shout out. I'm bringing it up again. Like I said, I would every single time. Nate, <laughs> Nate Bargatze. You know oh, who that yeah. is? Yep. So he has a great bit about, I don't think if I, if they took me and just threw me back in the 1920s, I don't think I could really prove I was from the future. Uh, <laughs> and he's like, you know, because I'd see someone talking on a, on a phone and I'd be like, yeah, in, in the future that they, they have those in you carry around in your pocket. And they go, oh, how do they do that? It's like, I don't really know how they do that. I think it has to do with uh, satellites. It's like, what's a satellite? It's like, hmm. Shouldn't have even brought that up. Uh, <laughs> I think it's like metal uh, and it goes real high. And uh, I just go back in time and I do worse. I couldn't even <laughs> prove. They'd be like, all right, who's the next president? It'd be like uh, Abraham uh, Lincoln. And it, <laughs> they just think I was from the past. So, shout out Nate Bargetsy. 
No, that that is hilarious. So the other thing I wanted to mention uh, with energy, I think I think you're right with geothermal, and you know, I'd like for us to do a lot more nuclear. But it was interesting. He pointed out the amount of energy that the sun puts on the Earth yeah. in 90 minutes, if all harnessed in 90 minutes, could be used for an entire year of all the energy we use uh, as humans. And I just thought that was very interesting. And that another interesting point is that. All, almost all energy is from the sun. You know, the plants we eat use photosynthesis to convert that light into energy. And whether it's, you know, the plants or animals that we eat, you know, the animals ate plants. And so I just thought it's very interesting. The sun is such an essential part of Earth as we know it. And I guess I don't want to get too much into the future, but we'll eventually need to come up with something because the earth will, or the sun will not be around forever uh, and will expand. And oh. so we're eventually going to need to We're talking about in the billions of years from now. I think okay, we I'm are just saying before that. <laughs> what do you, you think, think the over under is? I, I say over under on 2.5 billion. We, we learned in this book, right? About 10,000 years of human history. We've only been around for whatever, a couple hundred thousand are you taking the over on 1.5 billion years of human existence? I don't know. I'd like to be optimistic that we're, <laughs> you know, but maybe it's not humans. And that's kind of what he talks about in, in the last chapter. And we don't have to go to that yet because I think that's probably a, a finishing topic. But in a sense, I would optimistically say that hopefully we'll be around, but on a lot, a lot more planets. Yeah. If, if we're around, then we're going to have already solved that problem quite off, like quite a long time ago. I think that, the things we need to watch out for are a big asteroid that got the dinosaurs. I think a volcanic, you know, if we if we had a volcanic winter, the issue with that isn't the actual ash and whatever. It's that the clouds block out the sun, all plant life dies, and then all animal life dies. Like, and that's yep. pretty easy for that to actually happen. There's some super volcano in Yellowstone that's 10,000 years from uh, overdue on erupting or whatever. I forget the stupid conspiracy theory, but or scientific theory that says we all were supposed to die a while ago. Um, but either way, I think there are enough hazards in the universe that a billion years is an insanely long time and that we probably Elon might change things a little bit here if we end up on a couple of planets and then we end up. Yeah, if technology allows us to be a mortal which he talks about as well in the last yep. section then we've got a chance but as long as we're stuck on this rock and can die you know just from existing then so you're saying some some other disaster wipes us out prior to the sun expanding yes That's, okay fair enough that's fair um, and we're, we're pretty good at mitigating stuff like i think at this point the militaries would be able to stop like some serious asteroids that would be on a collision course we would be able to send something up to blow it up enough to redirect where it goes so that it doesn't end up on earth. And we have people monitoring that. So the scientific revolution has allowed us to actually have cosmic relevance in, in terms of mitigating extinction level disasters. And that's wild, but there's still so much we don't know, like what causes earthquakes and volcanoes theoretically is tectonic plates shifting. We don't have a good theory for what causes that. And we don't have a good way to predict those movements happening right that's a little For bit sure. beyond us right now so still a lot to go so one thing i wanted to quickly bring up and and mostly it's a joke you got to you got to tell your nate bargazzi thing but you know if there's a volcanic winter you know i'm pretty sure 
that some plants grow, you know, underground or inside using artificial light. And some of these plants, you know, may be used to expand the mind. But could that possibly be done <laughs> with food, right? Like if we had enough energy, we could convert ah. it into light. Do you think that's one way out of a volcanic winter? So the, the you see what I'm saying? I do, but you're putting the cart before the horse in that. I mean, sure, if someone has access to an oil pump and all the conversions necessary and is able to operate that post, you know, volcanic winter, post solar flare, post whatever that causes significant issues to the energy ecosystem, maybe. But I don't believe that that will happen because the energy ecosystem will be so devastated that there won't oh, be yeah. the energy to run those lights to grow yeah. that food. You know? you're, you're definitely probably right. But I'd like to think that somewhere so someone has a grow up and that a volcanic winter happens and somehow they make it through. I, it would be to me, that's probably like <laughs> the Martian where it's yeah. like, it's only potatoes. That's all you're living on then, is <laughs> potatoes. And hopefully you got enough vitamins stored up that like you don't get scurvy, but. Dude, maybe maybe that's something Doomsday Prepper should have. Just like packets of seeds of like all different types of. Uh... Oh, they do, man. Oh yeah. <laughs> I haven't watched Doomsday Preppers, but I think I would really enjoy that show. Well, I guess I've, not to divvy too far, and <laughs> we are, but uh, I feel like I've heard like some negative things about that. And, and mostly those doomsday preppers are the ones willing to talk to people and quote unquote real doomsday preppers aren't going to tell you, you know, where they're hiding their stuff or where they're putting stuff in. So you're getting like the, you're not getting the cream of the crop per se on doomsday preppers. Yeah, of course not. Because the U S government isn't showing us the mile and a half <laughs> silo they've built underneath the Colorado, the Denver airport, right? Like what? Yeah. I probably agree that the people that are most worried about, the end of the world and preparing for it aren't willing to share with us their plans for the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> so do we want to hit the last chapter or did you have anything else you'd like to discuss in the scientific revolution? I, if it's okay, I just want to throw one line out and once again, complain. If that's, <laughs> can I do that? Yeah, of course. Come on. On on page 400 of this book, he lets us know recent advances in our understanding of how organisms work down to the <laughs> cellular and nuclear levels have opened up previously unimaginable possibilities. And he tells us, for instance, we can today not merely castrate a man, but can also change his sex through surgical and hormonal treatments. And I just have to say, man, like you, sh you should be here in this episode after our previous episode that <laughs> at the time of this recording has been released yet. I make the claim that we don't have that ability at this point in human history to change, you know, the DNA change you from an XX to an XY chromosome. I found out today from reading this from Yuval that I was misinformed. So. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's good to admit when you're wrong, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so, what was your, what was your big takeaway from, from the end of Homo sapiens? Yeah. So the end of Homo sapiens, he talks about a few different things coming up of mice and men. So biological engineering, he talks about, you know, how we're able to actually put genes from different animals into other animals. And he talks about this green rabbit that was done as a, as an art gallery in a sense and how that is intelligent design and it's now at this point that we're 
were able to change evolution in a sense or go around it. He talks about uh return of Neanderthals and how, you know, we could we could essentially bring back different creatures that have gone extinct by using their DNA in similar creatures. But it's it's biological engineering, bionic engineering and another life as in creating ai or some sort of other consciousness i know you have a disagreement with that i do to talk about the other sections real quick one of the parts that was interesting for me was of mice and men he doesn't bring it up but what i was thinking the whole time what does he say here he says and it's not just pious monotheists who object that man should not usurp god's role Many confirmed atheists are no less shocked by the idea that scientists are stepping into nature's shoes. And they talk about animal rights activists and whoever uh, complaining about things. One of the things that I wish he had brought up was Chinese current Chinese bioengineering. And they are doing crosses between humans and other species. And when you have a... We're making human animal chimeras. <sighs> We're making the frogs gay. <laughs> it's true it's true <laughs> look it up alex jones isn't wrong on the, the, ta- the tanks are shrinking either way i was amazed at that when i found when i actually looked into that and found out about that it's like when you have a christian worldview yes he says it's not just christians or not just monotheists who object to that but you can tell when something's disordered i personally have no issue with green rabbits. If you want to make a green rabbit, if you want to make a rainbow rabbit, if you can do it, I'll be impressed personally. I have an issue with crossing humans with other species. And that I think is why a communist ideology can never coexist with any sort of theistic ideology. Communism is inherently atheistic and that's because it takes the role of God and says, let's expand our empire and not enslave. I mean, in, in a sense enslave, but take control over the whole of humanity. And so that was that was just something I was thinking about as I was reading that section was like, man, I can't, you know, he's talking about E. coli being fused, you know, parts of E. coli being fused with potatoes so that it, you know, is more resistant to like freezing in the winter. And I'm like, yeah, that's interesting, but not as interesting as, <laughs> you know, the human hybrids. So for sure. Uh, um, so, and then, sorry, oh, if sorry. I want to talk no, about the, the AI. Good. You want me to talk about the AI? Yeah, let's talk about the AI. I, fi- I find that theory to be interesting. There was something a couple of months ago where a Google engineer claimed that his AI had gained sentience. There's something inherent about consciousness that we don't fully understand. And I think that even if a computer program that is allowed itself to learn, to go through deep learning, even if it is able to ask the question, what is my purpose? Your purpose is to fast butter. That doesn't <laughs> that doesn't make it conscious. It, it makes it aware, but I think there is a difference between awareness and consciousness. And I don't know that I can articulate it here. But do you find that compelling? the The pushback that I would give is, you know, like, and I think this is now, you know, not as as clearly defined. But I think, therefore, I am right. So the only reason you know i can believe that you're conscious is because i'm conscious and you're similar to me there's philosophical ideas that you know we could just be brains in jars reacting to electrical stimuli these could essentially be computers i guess i don't know that i find it completely compelling 
Here, here's my question. I think we don't know enough, right? And I don't know that we can know enough to know that something is conscious or not. Do you think that consciousness needs to be embodied in order for it to be alive? Well, here's a here's a thought experiment, right? If hypothetically I could copy your brain onto a computer, right? I, I could copy everything that you know currently and put it onto a computer or or even actually let's to make it better, an Android, right? And we could put you in a state right now where you're unconscious, you know, we copy over your brain and you wake up and you're in an Android body, right? But it's, it's not you, it's a copy of you. Do you think that there's now two conscious beings or one's just a copy of another? I would think that one is the copy of the other. Okay, but it's going to be thinking that it is conscious. Yep. So who's to say it isn't? And like you said, maybe you can't fully articulate. And, you know, because consciousness is such a difficult thing to really understand, I just think there's a lot of philosophical arguments that make it make it possible that consciousness could be in something that doesn't have a human body. So I think the this makes me think of, I think we've both watched Black Mirror. Have you? Yes, most of the episodes. So there's one where it's basically like a program that tells you if you're supposed to date this person, how long you're going to date them. You know what I'm talking about? I believe so, yeah. I think that we get into the realm of if we can copy a consciousness, why wouldn't we take a hundred million copies of my consciousness and upload them to a simulation and have them play out different realities and then be able to choose a path forward from that for the actual me that is oh, a yeah. living biological thing, right? So sure, does that raise ethical concerns? I guess if Whoa. that consciousness is real, but I don't think it is because it, it, it is a copy of something that's real, but it itself is is a mirage it's a shadow it didn't have those feelings it's not synapses that are firing it's computer program that is approximating as closely as it can a memory or a a, um yeah a a mirage of a human being to be fair though i mean we don't know that right now our synapses are firing or if we're just computer code uh, so I mean, sure. The, I the mean, universe. The universe began three minutes ago, right? I, it could have. It's it's not impossible. I would say it's no. It's it's on... irrefutable. It's unable to be refuted. When you when you make a claim like that, it, it is specifically it's ascientific because they're yeah you, know, you yeah you can't right. So it's not good to speak in those in those terms. And you know the thought experiment I brought up isn't isn't something that can be done currently, right? Anyways. I, I think it's a very interesting discussion and to me more philosophical than anything. It is. And, and I think it raises a lot of questions. And I, I think again, to re, I think we should wrap this up, but the, for the, sure, the part of this book that was challenging for me was this author has such a, a almost inverse. It's almost exactly the opposite to my worldview <laughs> uh, that 
the assertions that he makes, I found very jarring. Uh, and I think the disregard for humanity when he was in that talking in that last section about another life, you could read it and feel like he's the intonation is saying, well, thank goodness humans are going to be left behind because look at all the destruction that we've caused to the environment and all the suffering to animals that we've caused in the afterward, the animal that became a God, he says, but did we decrease the amount of suffering in the world? Time and time again, massive increases in human power did not necessarily improve the well-being of individual sapiens and usually caused immense misery to other animals. So, you know, he, he discounts the value of humans, which to me are the most valuable as being created in the image and likeness of God and elevates the value of, you know, sentient creatures, which are important and also, you know, valuable. But I, I just found it to be such a hard dichotomy to deal with on a page by page basis. But overall, it was it was a very interesting book, gave me a lot of insight into, again, institutions, how they were created. Was there anything big that we missed, either even in the first section that we should have talked about or uh, over these last two? I'm sure there are some things, but a point that I wanted to, you know, just just touch on on briefly is, you know, it may not have been Harari's goal to have these contradictions, but I think when reading something you don't necessarily agree with, it provides, you know, a new viewpoint. And then there becomes this this discussion between what the contradictions are. And it is weird reading something where you can where you can see, you know, from one chapter to another. Uh, and I am, you know, plagiarizing your your Goodreads review. But when you can read, you know, from paragraph to paragraph, some of the the contradictions that he himself has. I think it just shows that as humans, you know, we are imperfect and nothing's going to be unbiased. The the only like last part that I wanted to specifically talk about in the book, maybe not even talk about, but he writes at the end, the only thing we can try to do is influence the direction scientists are taking. But since we might soon be able to engineer our desires too, the real question facing us is not what do we want to become, but what do we want to want? Those who are not spooked by this question probably haven't given it enough thought. I, when I first read this, you know, and it was maybe an hour before we recorded this, I had to read this paragraph like five times just because it, it's a very interesting question. If we did can you, did you find our an, desires, like what, what do we want to want? Did you find an answer in your own head? Uh, not that I've presupposed now, but. I think it comes to a lot of, you know, what our intrinsic values are, what we believe meaning to be. I think you could take two entirely different people and if, you know, they're engineering the next the next thing after humans, it could be two different species of of being based on the values given it in the in the programming, you know, and, and maybe that's not life, but it sure is, you know, some sort of sentience. You you could essentially split humanity in two different directions due to just what the engineers program into these artificial intelligences. And it, it's, to me, it's just a very interesting question. It definitely is. And I, I think perhaps the, the, my biggest takeaway is um, from this book is that there are more questions than we have answers around, um, you know, humanity and not only you know, human history, but the the future. And I don't think we're going to be answering a lot of them anytime soon. But, you know, if you are a person that has an interest in understanding the evolution of society, 
I think it does a really good job explaining that. And if, you know, you are sitting here in the modern world feeling very um, atomized, the, the last section explains really well how we got to that place. And I don't think we talked about that a, a ton here, but it was it was really interesting to read. And Tommy, I think we gave it a, a review last time, but I don't think that I even remember what that was. So listeners, just, uh, you know. I apologize for the inconsistency here, <laughs> but we're going to go ahead and give it a rating here, I'd say. Mm. So as a review, Seven Habits, you gave an 8.23. Atomic Habits, you gave an 8.5. Mere Christianity, you gave an 8.0. Man's Search for Meaning, you gave a 9.9. You gave it a 10 at first, but I know. then said, I don't <laughs> want to do that. So Sapiens, where are you putting it? I think it's a 6.8. That's what I'm going to go with it. 6.8. Um, you know, because some of these contradictions, you know, clearly you can see the bias. And, and when you're when you're trying to speak as a, you know, saying that you're objective and only using science and it's clearly not. There are there are values that are put into this. And I think that's hard to get past. But I think reading the this book has led to, you know, one, uh, like you said a couple of times, you know, a, a bunch of interesting historical facts. And then also, too, I think really great discussion just because of the multitude of different topics discussed and discussed thoroughly in this book. Yep. I so it's a fair rating. I'm, I'm glad you gave it a note that I have is I think this is the the longest book we've read. I think uh, Seven Habits was a, a fairly long book. And then the other three that we've reviewed were not all that long. So I'd say this was the most challenging read, not just due to the ideological differences, but also just intellectually. He's, uh, you know, a PhD, very smart guy, using big words, referring to things that you might not know about uh, ancient religion, stuff like that. So if you it's going to be a project to read the entire book. It was for both of us, I'd say. And I'm going to give it, ah, you gave it a 6.8, man. You're, you're challenging me. <laughs> I'm going to give it a 6.2. Okay. I think, I think that's pretty fair. And next up, what are we reading, Tommy? Next up, we will be reading How to Stop Worrying and Start Living, Time-Tested Methods for Conquering Worry by dale carnegie one of them uh, an american classic right there carnegie yeah very excited to read this um i also have another of his books right below on my stack of books uh how to win friends and influence people so mm. i haven't been able to check that one out yet but very very excited to be reading this i know i get anxious on occasion so i'm sure dale carnegie can tell me how not to be solve that problem for you there you go <laughs> um feel free to follow me on goodreads by the way i think it's paul.mcclellan or paul mcclellan something like that give me a look up thanks for giving me the shout out on goodreads earlier tommy i really like that program if you're a reader it's a good way to find new books it's a good way to see what other people thought of the books they were reading it's a good way to connect you with your friends and do challenges and keep your reading up with which i think tommy and i both would encourage give us a follow on instagram at brace.22 and we really appreciate you listening today thank you goodbye bye-bye <laughs>